Welcome to Paris podcast number 98. And today we're talking about UAVs, but marsupial UAVs. And if you don't know what that is, then you're in the right place because we're going to talk about what these are. We're also going to talk about what the experimental methodology of these tests are and the numerical simulation methodologies as well. This is going to be a two-part series because the first part we're going to be talking about how to investigate these different flying objects. And the second part is going to be about some other results as well. So to look at this, we're going to look at a paper called Ground Test and Numerical Simulation of Aerodynamic Interference of the Marsupial UAS. This is open access again, so you can find it in the link in the description and download it if you'd like. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, you can either find the video on Spotify or you can go onto our YouTube channel and find the video there as well. And if you're looking at it on our YouTube channel, then you can see the video already. So let's talk about what these marsupial UAVs are. They say in recent years, small un Unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, have developed rapidly in military and civilian applications due to their strong survivability, good maneuverability, and low manufacturing cost with small size. However, at adequate size, I should say. However, due to the limit of energy technology, small UAVs have some shortcomings, such as low flight speed, poor endurance, and limited load capacity. As a result, the mission range of small UAVs in practical applications is small. At the same time, the security and reliability of small UAVs is relatively awful. In late October 2021, DARPA successfully captured a Pixie drone using a C-130 transport aircraft. So this is a, um, a military airplane for cargo, and they managed to pick one up in, in it. That's pretty cool. They flew near it, and they like, grabbed it out of the air. They say it was the first airborne recover, recovery of a marsupial UAV, although another child drone was damaged during the test. So in other words, they're saying that a marsupial UAV is when you have a parent drone and then you have other drones that get housed inside and they can deploy. So marsupial, for those of you who don't know what a marsupial is, if just think about a kangaroo. This is where you have like a main kangaroo and then you have a pouch which the little joey or the little kangaroo goes in there. That's a marsupial. So it's the same kind of idea here. That's why they call them marsupials. And you have a whole bunch of different marsupials in Australia as well. Um, so that's where they get the name from. So, so far, the aerial recovery of children UAVs is still a difficult problem to be solved. In order to solve the problem of, aer of aerial collaborative recover, recovery of the marsupial UAVs, the multi-rotor UAV is used as a parent flying platform. So this is the parent and they have a big UAV. Then the children UAVs are launched and recovered from the top of the parent UAV to reduce the aerodynamic interference of the marsupial UAS, so the uh, unmanned aerial system, and improve the flight stability of the system. So why would you want to deploy them from the top instead of underneath? They mentioned this briefly where they said less aerodynamic interference. But if we think about what this means, first of all, the parent UAV is much bigger than the children UAV. And we're going to go through these sizes a little bit later. Um, but generally speaking, it's like 10 times the size. This means that the parent UAV is producing a lot more thrust than the children UAVs. There means there's a lot more downwash, etc. So if you were to launch these tiny little UAVs underneath the bigger one, then the downwash and just the aerodynamics of this larger UAV um, would significantly affect the flight of these little UAVs to the point where they may not even be stable. So they might just like lose stability and fall out of the air. So by launching it from the top, you can reduce the likelihood of that happening. So they say there are two challenges in the aerodynamic analysis of the marsupial UAVs. First, both the parent UAV and the, sec and the child UAV contain multiple rotors and bodies, and the aerodynamic interference is complex. Secondly, 
There are few rele relevant studies available for reference since the marsupial system is a new unmanned heterogeneous aerial platform. So now they talk about how to investigate these uh, bodies, these flying bodies. So they say, based on the Navier-Stokes method, Kang and Sun, so a couple of researchers, introduced the source to, to simulate to simulate sorry the flow field of single tandem side by side and coaxial rotors operating near the ground. So let's talk about this first of all. So Navier-Stokes is the typical CFD method. They say introduced a source term. What is a source term? A source term is pretty much what it sounds like. It's a source of something. And in this particular case, it's just a source of uh, fluid or momentum or whatever you want to call it. Um, this is just your injecting um, a property at a certain point in the in the domain that you have. So let's say you have the rotor, instead of having this rotor going around and you simulate this, you just say, okay, this area here that the rotor takes up, we're going to say there's this much, the velocity of the air is this much coming out of it. And you don't have to simulate the rotor then. And this is a very efficient way of conducting CFD. It is often very accurate, sometimes not very accurate. We're going to go through that again later in this podcast. But there are different ways to describe this source term. And depending on how you describe it, the source term can be more accurate or less accurate as you'd expect. Um, if you have simply like a point source term, which means you just have one point where all this uh, momentum comes out of, that's not going to be um, accurate for a rotor because a rotor has a distributed um, source of momentum. If you think about the rotor area that it sweeps around, that's a cross-sectional area. If you have just one tiny point that's supposed to replicate that entire cross-sectional area, that's not going to be accurate. So you need to distribute this uh, momentum flux. There's additional momentum coming into the system over a, a relevant cross-sectional area. So that's where the source term really has a big effect on the aerodynamics. And they talk about simulating this source term accurately later on. So let's move on. The other, um, the other thing to think, watch in this study is the interaction between the aircraft and the environment, such as the ground, the ground effect, near surface effect. So the ground effects and near surface effects are when you have an object um, producing lift near a solid surface or even a semi-porous surface, you're not going to get the exact same effects of a semi-porous, but it's going to be similar to ground effect. It's sort of like the Diet Coke of ground effect. You can think of it. It's not quite the full thing, but it's pretty close. So <laughs> the weight propagation and flow development of the motor rotors have been studied and operating a multi-rotor approaching an obstacle in practical applications can lead to catastrophic mission failure without adequate understanding of proximity effects. So in other words, when you fly a drone near a surface, the exact effects on the ground uh, on that surface are not fully known and it can result in instability in the drone and it falls out of the sky. So Raza, a, a researcher, used time-accurate LES to simulate the wind field behind the, a building and studied its influence on stable flight control of a quad rotor. And another researcher, Paz, used a numerical simulation method based on a dynamic mesh to analyze the influence of different flight speeds on their aerodynamic characteristics when the rotor, when a quad rotor is flying over obstacles. So I just highlighted this bit because I'm talking about dynamic meshes. So this is now um, in the CFD setup when you have a mesh and let's say you just were to mesh a general domain, that's usually just called a static mesh. And we don't really call it a static mesh because it's just a standard mesh, but technically I guess you would call it a standard static mesh. That's the mesh. If you have the mesh in it moving in somehow, and you maybe have an overlapping of meshes and one mesh moves and et cetera, that can be a dynamic mesh. And this is often used when you have um, moving objects 
or you have two different objects that change proximity to each other with time, you can use a dynamic mesh. So that's what they used here. So Casalino, another researcher, studied the acoustic impact of rotors in urban traffic based on um, very large eddy simulation methods, revealing the importance of multi multiple vortex body interactions in a complex multi-rotor system. So in other words, <laughs> if you just have one rotor, or one UAV, sorry, they have multiple rotors and those are all interacting with each other. So that's a complex aerodynamic phenomenon going on right there. When you have parent UAVs and children UAVs, now it's even more complex. So let's move on here. They say when the parent UAV below is below is relatively large, such as the marsupial system, or when two UAVs are nearby, such as a multi-rotor formation, the aerodynamic interference caused by the UAV cannot be ignored. In this paper, a ground test was built to measure the extent of the interference effects of the small child UAV on a large parent UAV. And they go through um, the different zones where these UAVs will be relative to each other and they get some really cool results. Let's first talk about the methodologies. So first of all, the ground test experiments. In the design of the marsupial UAV system, they want the parent UAV to carry as many children UAVs as possible for long distance flights. So this is important to talk about here because um, they first of all say as many children as possible, which means that um, they want to carry more than one child. And if you were to look at the parameters of these UAVs, the parent UAV weighs six kilos. So that's fairly large for UAV. Now, a child UAV weighs 0.4 kilos. So that's still, that's, that's about right. But considering that that's still like 7% of a parent UAV's weight, that's still a very big payload. So how many of these you can carry, who knows? But even just one is pretty decent. So the fact that they want to carry more is quite a um, large feat, especially if you want to travel large distances. And they have the general sizing of the parent UAVs and they're like, even though they're six kilos, they're not that big. They're only um, about a meter um, by a meter. And then these children UAVs are like 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters by a few centimeters thick. So the child UAV model is a ducted small quad rotor. So that means that there are four rotors and the duct can reduce the mutual interference between rotors, increasing the lift of the aircraft and increasing the flight safety of to a certain extent. So in other words, the rotors have these tubings around them and this helps not only um, protect the rotors from debris or hitting stuff or whatever, but also channel the flow down properly so that you um, get more thrust potentially out of it and they become more efficient. And they also don't, um, they results in the wakes not interacting with each other as much, which means that the rotors are a bit more um, independent of each other in terms of their performances, a bit more stable. So, with the experimental setup, they have um, the apparent rotor, apparent um, UAV, sorry, and then they have a child UAV just above it in different locations, and they have it attached to a um, like a structure system. And the only structure they have force measurements, and they have all different um, equipment to measure the wakes and the pressure distributions around the UAVs. So that's the experimental setup. They say that. In this experiment, the rotation speed of the parent UAV rotors and the child UAV rotors were 13,000 and 3,400 RPM respectively. So 13,000 is fairly high. You can get higher, but that's getting towards the higher end and 3,000 is quite low. So the parent UAV is producing 60 newtons of lift. The child UAV is producing four newtons of lift. Now, 
this is quite interesting because the parent UAV has 60 newtons of lift, which corresponds to about six kilo mass. And the parent UAV mass is six kilos alone. So that means it's in steady flight effectively. And likewise, the child UAV only weighs 0 0.4 kilograms, which is about 4.1 newtons, which is how much is producing um, in this level of flight. So in other words, they're, they're not testing when these UAVs are parting from each other, like one's taking off from the other. They're just testing when these UAVs are in proximity into each other at um, stationary heights. Like they, they, don't, um, they don't accelerate anywhere, at least not under their own power, maybe due to interference, but not from their own power. So onto the CFD numerical method. So this paper adopts the rotor aerodynamic simulation method based on a momentum source. As I mentioned earlier, the source um, is just a point at which you say, okay, more fluid is coming in here or more momentum is coming in here or whatever. And they're using the momentum source. Using this method, the rotor is replaced by a thin disc and the element force of the blade during the rotation is replaced by a momentum source term. So the entire blade, like the entire rotor is just now a thin disc. And they're saying through this thin disc, we're getting this much momentum coming out. The periodic flow is transformed in a quasi-steady flow state by the method of time averaging. Let's talk about this. The periodic flow is transformed into a quasi-steady flow. So what this means is that the periodic flow refers to the rotors going around. So obviously in a UAV or a rotor, you have, let's say you have three um, blades coming out. So that means that every 180 degrees, you have a blade. That doesn't mean that the entire... 360 degrees has just one big blade, it, but there are blades at, at um, discrete points. So that means that as the blade goes around, you get a periodic phenomenon happening in terms of thrust being uh, produced. They're transforming this into a quasi-steady flow state, which means that they're just now averaging the, the, um, the, the, the thrust being produced around the entire disc and just saying, okay, over the entire disc, this is how much thrust is coming out. Instead of saying, okay, at this point in the disc, how much thrust is coming out here, then next to it, how much thrust and blah, blah, blah. They say this method ignores, ignores the time-varying flow details close to the blade, which reduces the difficulty of grid generations. So that's why they're doing it. It also reduces the, um, the simulation difficulty in terms of whether you need to use like MRFs or whatever, which are just ways of um, simulating the rotation of something. They say that it requires less computational resources and faster solution speeds under the premise of high computational accuracy. So um, with high RPM rotors, this is fine. For very low RPM rotors or um, rotors where um, different RPMs change the flow physics of the blades going through and different lifts and it's not linear or whatever, then you may want to look at more accurate approaches. But here they have quite high RPM, so it seems to be okay. So the CFD solver using this paper is a commercial software fluent. That's uh, part of the ANSYS package. Simulation of the K epsilon turbulence model, which is, is which performs well for rotor aerodynamic calculations. So they're using a URANS or RANS uh, approach, and they're using the K epsilon turbulence model. So let's talk about this here because I always like to talk about different turbulence modeling. Um, so if you've followed any of our um, other podcasts, you'll know that I'm a big fan of the SST K Omega turbulence model for RANS and URANS, and that's because it is so robust and accurate. The K epsilon, I usually um, trash talk quite a bit because I don't like it, um, but that's because it is not um, very robust. There are certain applications where it's very good. Those applications are really limited to 
when the flow is very turbulent, where you don't have to worry about um, transition. Like there's the transition is not only um, very sudden, but it happens quite early in the flow. Um, and in this particular case, that's the case. So for the rotor, you're going to be getting a very turbulent flow around it. So the capsule model is fine. Um, some situations where that may break down this particular application is maybe when you're resulting in um, flow suppression over the rotors, the capsule model may break down then. You may get different flow suppression patterns. Um, but for the majority of cases for a rotor where you have a turbulent flow, capsule is fine. This is one of those times when um, it is okay, I guess. I still like K Omega, uh, SSD K Omega, but that's just me. Capsulon is fine in terms of this application and it would save a little bit more time compared to the SSD K Omega in this particular case because there are fewer equations being solved. Um, but in other cases, you're going to get a far less accurate simulation result if you use Capsulon instead of other terminus modeling. In this test, the pressure distribution under the propeller was measured for a single propeller. And a comparison of the simulation and test results is shown in figure six. So what they wanted to find is if their um, approach to modeling the rotor is any good. So that means not only their source term for the momentum, uh, the momentum source term, sorry, for uh, approximating the rotor, but also just their entire general setup. So in figure six, they have a location just underneath the rotor, a single rotor and they have the dynamic pressure along the span of the rotor. So from um, the left side of the rotor all the way through to the middle and then to the right side of the rotor. And they say the dynamic pressure distribution at, this is at 0.104 times the rotor radius under the propeller is consistent with the experimental results. Verifying the accuracy of the method in the simulating the rotor flow field. So in other words, um, the simulation results are matching quite nicely with experimental results. So they say that their method for simulation is good. Now, one thing that should be noted is that there are small differences. Um, this may be due to the simulation um, approach, but also potentially due to the density of air, um, which I talk about quite a lot. And that's because we actually make an instrument that actually measures the density of air for you. And the reason why this is important is because it changes by about two to 4% every day and more between um, days, weeks, months, seasons. So you can get up to 10 or 15% change throughout the year. Um, and if you don't measure those density changes accurately, when you go to do your simulation, you have the, uh, the wrong density compared to your experimental validation data. So you can't get the right results unless you really hack your result, hack your CFD and you just butcher it to the point where it doesn't actually make sense anymore, but you get the right results for some reason. Um, so you just should better accurately measure the density to begin with. So that's one reason why you might get difference in your simulation results compared to your experimental. Another reason is because of how you set up your simulation to begin with. So in terms of their um, results here, I just want to talk about the dynamic pressure uh, uh, distribution across a rotor. So at the middle, at the center, the dynamic pressure is the loss, and this corresponds to the speed of the flow coming out. And dynamic pressure is uh, equals half times the density times the velocity squared. So the greater the velocity, the um, greater the dynamic pressure. And if you want to learn more about the difference between dynamic pressure, static pressure, and total pressure, check out our podcast number 41. And this is a very interesting podcast, one of my favorites, because it talks about a these three concepts, which are very uh, fundamental to aerodynamics. And um, some people don't um, necessarily understand the difference between them. And I give an example, I think, in that podcast and other podcasts. For example, when I was in my second year of my PhD, 
I was, I remember I was in a wind tunnel and I was talking about a pedostatic tube with another PhD student. He was in his fourth year from memory and he didn't understand how it worked. And I had to explain to him the difference between total pressure, static pressure and dynamic pressure. And that was quite eye-opening to me because I thought these were very fundamental properties, um, but they're not. So just check out podcast number 41 because it's always good to make sure you understand these properties properly because they are like without understanding properly what they are, you can't really do aerodynamics. So anyway, this graph shows the dynamic pressure and in the center, we get the loss dynamic pressure of about 20 pascals. And this makes sense because at this point, you not only have the shaft of the rotor, which um, isn't producing any thrust, but the thrust that you're actually going to be getting is from just the edges near the, that um, shaft. And these rotor points are moving very slowly because the tangential velocity, sorry, the RPM is the same, but because you're not very far away from the center, the tangential velocity is very low you get a low thrust. As you go away towards the edge of the rotor, the tangential velocity increases more and more to the point where you get a lot of thrust. So in this particular case, you're up to 140 pascals. So three and a half times, oh my, actually, sorry, six and seven times more than at the center. And that makes sense. So that's all good. So in th this research, the computational domain now is 6 billion grid cells. And this simulates the marsupial UAV system. And the grids are shown in figure seven. So let's talk about this because it's quite cool. So they first will have the parent UAV below the child UAV. And they have refinement zones around these ones that have a boundary layer mesh or inflation measure, inflation layer, whatever you want to call it. They have um, then refinement zones around the child mesh, around the child UAV, sorry, and then around the parent UAV. And then they get coarser and coarser as you go out. So that makes sense. And then around the propeller, they have actually a very fine mesh where the source term would be. And they say that the thermal intensity of the inlet and outlet was set to 5%. So that's fairly high. However, that's fairly indicative of um, environmental um, conditions. So that's fine. So let's talk about some of the results now. We've talked about the method in, in terms of the experimental and CFD setups. Let's talk about some of the methods, uh, some of the results, and we'll go into more of the results in the next podcast as well. But we'll just touch upon some of the interesting ones here as well. So the results and discussion, the aerodynamic interference of in the launch and recovery process. So according to the position of the child UAV, the area above the parent UAV is divided into three parts. The interference area above the body, the interference area above the rotors, and the transition areas. So in other words, when you have the parent UAV, you have the child UAV can be anywhere around and have three different zones. The first zone is when it's right above the body of the UAV, the parent UAV, not the rotors, but the body itself. Then as you go towards the rotors, you transition from being above the body to being above the rotors. So that's the second area. The third area is when you're above the rotors. So why would this, why would this matter? Well, the first point of view is that when you have something above the body, the parent UAV, the body is a hard surface. It's, it's solid. So that's effectively a ground effect kind of thing happening. Uh, when you're above the rotors, you now have your UAV, your child UAV, um, like throwing a lot of air into these other rotors, which not only affects the parent UAV, but also the child UAV, because now you have the parent UAV is like sucking this air as well. So there's this complex interaction going on, which changes the thrust production of these of both UAVs. Secondly, when you have the child UAV over the body of the parent UAV, the um, 
wash coming out of the child UAV is fairly well, is fairly axisymmetric um, about the parent UAV. So in other words, each one of the four rows is going to be affected about the same amount um, because it is located in the middle of the parent UAV. However, when the child UAV is above just one of the rotors, obviously that rotor is going to get affected a lot more than all the other rotors because the, the wash from the child UAV is directly impacting that rotor. So that's, uh, these are differences, which is why they want to look at these different um, areas. So they talk about the interference area above the body first. They have a figure nine here, which shows the lift curve of the child UAV in the body interference area. They say, the rotors of the parent UAV reduce the lift of the child UAV. It can also be seen from the curve of the child UAV lift with the parent rotors in figure six, uh, figure nine, sorry. So as you get closer to the parent UAV, the lift being produced dramatically increases above the body, sorry. And this is because the body is a hard surface, so that makes sense. They say the effect of the parent, UAV, parent rotor on the lift of the child UAV increases, then decreases with increasing relative height. The lift of the child UAV is reduced by 3.5% at the relative height of 2 centimeters. At a height of 21 centimeters, the rotor downwash effects reach its maximum with a lift loss of about 10%. Now, there are two things that we'll talk about here. First of all is they have the results of the parent UAV with the rotors moving and without the rotors moving. I'm not sure why I'd care about without having the rotors moving because I don't see the practical application of this. Like The only reason would be if you have the parent UAV on the ground and then the, the child UAV like jumping into it. But in real life, I guess you'd have them all flying. So you'd want to have the parent UAV rotors moving. So anyway, in terms of when you have the parent UAV rotors moving, as you um, get very close to the parent UAV, the child's um, lift production skyrockets. So it goes from like, 4.2 newtons up to 5.4 newtons. As you move away, 20 centimeters above, it drops down to 3.8 newtons. And then as you get further away again, it goes back up to 4.2 newtons. So there's a, um, a range there where it's very detrimental and on either side of it, it's beneficial, I guess you could say, or, or goes back to normal at least. Then if you have the parent UAV rotors not moving, then it becomes a lot more um, predictable in terms of it's just like a ground effect where you have um, the closer you get to the body, the more that you're being you're producing. So the rotors obviously do have an effect because they're obviously sucking the air away a little bit as well. So that affects the lift production of the child UAV. So in Figure Ten, they have the schematic diagram of the influence extent above the body, and it's just really cool because they show the child UAV in um, a diagram is distance away from the body of the parent UAV. And they say, the red represents the area where the lift of the child UAV increases. The blue represents the area where the lift decreases. It also means in the blue area, the role of the parent rotors is stronger than the role of the parent body. And in the red area, the role of the body is dominant. That's interesting to know. So even though your UAV is above the body of the parent UAV, at certain points, the rotors of the parent UAV are still overriding the, the effects of the body of the parent UAV on the child UAV. So that's really cool. And in terms of the um, zone where the child UAV is producing more lift, this is really just very close to the parent UAV's body. Like it's only a, a few centimeters away. Once you get past that, you start producing less lift. So, and then in figure 11, they show the lift um, 
divided by power of the child UAV in the body interference area. So what this means is how much that you're producing with how much power you're putting in. The higher this value, the better you're doing because it means you don't need to use as much power to produce the lift that you need. They say that affected by the body of the parent UAV, the efficiency of the rotors will increase. So that makes sense. As you go closer to the body, you get the ground effect kind of thing happening and you get more lift for the same amount of power that you're giving. This is attributed to the fact that the ground effect can significantly reduce the induced power and the profiling power is almost unaffected, which is similar to the previous conclusion. Affected by the rotor of the parent UAV rotors, so the rotation of the parent UAV rotors, the power of the charge UAV will be reduced in some degree under the same rotor conditions of the charge UAV. So in other words, they have on this graph, the again, the lift to power plotted when you have the parent UAV rotors moving and when they're not moving. And for some reason, oh, not for some reason, but <laughs> the rotors do affect the amount of power lift, um, to power ratio at certain distances. When you get very close to the body, there's almost no effect, but as you get further away, there's more and more effect, generally speaking. And it's um, the rotors are detrimental for the lift. So in other words, when the rotors are moving, you're not producing as much power from the child UAV as if they're stationary. But again, in real life, there's not really much practical application for stationary rotors, I would think. So this is just a general theory um, for general theory understanding. So what does this all mean? It means that the rotors of the parent UAV reduce the lift of the child UAV when the child UAV is above the parent UAV's body to some extent, even though um, you'd hope that the parent UAV body would um, be completely beneficial and, uh, and the parent UAV to be completely beneficial, but it's not. So that's in this podcast. In the next podcast, we're going to be going through additional um, information, including um, all different power and stability uh, results and downwash um graphs and streamlines showing you how the flow moves and dynamic pressures etc so that's in this podcast make sure to like subscribe and the second podcast will be out in a few days and if you want to get better at cfd and or theory we got courses in the link in the description to help you get better and if you want to make your cfd validation data more accurate or your experimental data more accurate check out the atmosphere hawk it's the experiment that is the instrument we make to make your experiments better and your safety data more accurate and it measured the density of air very accurately to get rid of that two to four percent change just due to barrier pressure humidity and temperature changes throughout the day link in the description as well and i'll see you in the next podcast peace out amigos